We're in Luke 15 this morning. Luke 15, I'll give you a chance to turn there. Let me just first say, and I'm sorry to start with the bad news, but it it is that our world is broken. That our town is broken. That my life, in many ways, even is broken. We live in a broken world. Um, In fact, we're even taught to think that this world is not our home. I don't have to convince a Syrian refugee that this world isn't our home. They'd know that. Uh, Sometimes I need a reminder. This world is not my home. That uh, this broken world in its state. You know, you you hear these stories like I think we, we, when we went on the Clarkston trip, a few of us here from the church this past summer down to Georgia, we ministered to refugee immigrants, asylum seekers here in the United States. And we met one of the first Syrian families that had immigrated here. And a a few of us met them. And uh, we met this family, and we were talking. And I was speaking with them. And basically what happened is that they lived in the city of Aleppo in northern Syria. And one night they had this massive explosion that woke them up, this deafening noise. And they went out of their building, out into the street to see what had happened. And in the middle of the night, and their kids, their whole family went out, and they'd seen that the two apartment buildings beside them had both collapsed and were bombed. And, uh, and their children, uh, six and nine, or six and ten, I think, were their ages. You know, they had to see some of their friends um, dead on the street there in the rubble. And, these, uh, and that's when they decided to leave Syria. You, you meet so many families that have, have similar stories. And now, now there are mothers and fathers putting their babies on boats and sailing to Lesbos, that Greek island nearest to Turkey. And uh, as one you know, Muslim poet wrote, you have to understand that no one puts their children in a boat unless the water is safer than the land. That was circulating on Facebook and social media too, that, that powerful quote. We live in a broken world. We're going to a broken place. Every day, even though we live in nice Williamsburg, even then, even here, we bump into broken people, broken systems, broken churches, broken families. We're tainted and we're lost. And the world is lost. But like the Jesus Storybook Bible says, God has developed a rescue plan to come since the beginning of time. He's had it ready in work through His Son to save the lost. So before we get any further, why don't we read the text and then we'll pray. Luke 15, the story of that prodigal son. But we're going to, yeah, we'll start just at verse 11. Luke 15, 11. Oh, let me just start actually... <laughs> Let me read that first verse of the chapter, the context, and then we'll skip to verse 11. So verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, to Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. And then he actually tells them three stories. So let's move to the third one. 
Verse 11. And he said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this. My son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Amen. Let's just pray. Before we dig in. Heavenly Father. Heavenly Dad. Thank you that you love us. Thank you for your word. And I pray that you would speak through your humble weak servant this morning. And I pray that you give us a meal. To feast on from your word. And then later from this table the cup and the bread. And show us how you give unexpected and costly grace to sinners. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Jesus gives costly and unexpected grace to sinners. That's the big idea this morning. If you come away with nothing else, keep that. Jesus gives costly grace that's unexpected to sinners. To you and I. Some of you have been to the Middle East. 
I know it, you know it changes your perspective when you've seen places that you've only read about. It, it changes from being a fairy tale to being real. Not that if you haven't been there, it's always a fairy tale. But sometimes it kind of feels that way. You know, you're in the Bible world. And when you go and see it, it looks very dirty and real. <laughs> and down to earth. Uh, it's, it's where people really trod and lived. And where they live today very similarly to how they lived back then. It's a, it's a real place. And that's just to, tell you, to remind you that, that Jesus really did enter our world. He really entered our world into our brokenness. As he ha- and he hasn't left it yet. He's still here working. If you go, you know, just well for me, at least living in the Middle East, it just changed my perspective on Scripture a little bit. It's given me new lenses to view things, to see cultural things in the Word that I'd never noticed before. And there's a great book, too, that I've read recently. There's a guy named Ken Bailey. He writes a lot about the Middle East, interpreting the New Testament from a Middle Eastern perspective. It's a great book, or a number of books he's written. Uh, The Cross and the Prodigal is one you could pick up. Uh, I drew a lot from that book for this message. I also drew a lot from our experiences in Jordan. So this passage, in fact, Mr. Bailey calls it the, the gospel in the gospels. This is the, a capture of the gospel, an image, right in the middle of the, the gospel of Luke. The gospel, the story of the two lost sons is what it's called sometimes. Uh, I need the gospel every day. And kind of sharing this with you in the sense that I I need the gospel just as much as the Syrian refugee that I'm trying to reach needs it. I'm just as dependent on the good news that Jesus died and rose for me as any Syrian friend of mine may be or need to hear. That Jesus gives unexpected and costly grace to sinners. So let's get into the text. Let's Let's set the scene a little bit because Luke is a really good storyteller. He's a master storyteller. By the Holy Spirit, Luke has penned details and things that we're meant to kind of pick up on. And here, what's important too is that, well, what everybody knew, what everybody knows is never written. So when Jesus tells a parable, what everybody around him at the time would have known, I mean, everybody knows that. That's what was not going to be written in the text. Let me give you an example. Everybody in the Middle East knows that it's more important to be polite to your father than to obey him. So Jesus in Matthew's gospel is recorded as telling the Pharisees and scribes that there was a father who went to his one son and told him, go work in the vineyard. And that son said, no, father, I won't. But his conscience, I guess, you know, gets to him and he ends up going and doing what his father asked him. Father goes to the other son, tells him, go work in my vineyard. And that son says, yes, sir, I'll go. And then he doesn't go. And then Jesus asked his audience, who did the will of his father? And they have to say the one who ended up going, even though he was rude to his father's face. He was challenging the ideas of a Middle Eastern father and son. Anybody who heard that story would have known that norm. Here, we have a story, and I want to kind of fill in a little bit of the cultural things. What Jesus' audience would have seen and known. The scribes and the Pharisees, verse 1, were grumbling. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And Jesus basically says in his stories, what he's basically going to say is, no, buddies, guys, it's far worse than you think. I don't just receive and eat with sinners. I run down the road and kiss them on the neck 
and embrace them and drag them in to eat with them. It's far worse than you think, you imagine. And he gives them three stories. He says he told this parable, singular, one, you know. So he told them this parable in verse 3, and then he tells three stories. We're meant to read them together. First one is that story of the shepherd losing his one sheep out of 99 left. You know, he goes to find the one. And when he finds him, he carries him back on his shoulders and then invites all of his friends to celebrate. He found his, his lost sheep. Or the woman in the house with ten silver coins. It's the next story. She loses one, searches the whole house, sweeps, turns on, turns on a light, huh? likes a lamp. And, and searches until she finds it. And then she calls her neighbors together to celebrate that she found her lost silver coin. I told that story to Asher once, our four-year-old. And I told him, you know, we're like the coin, Asher. We, uh, you know, we're lost and, and God searches until he finds us. And he said, Daddy, you're a penny. That's what he told me. <laughs> You know, we know the story, we, well, we know the reality of the one who's lost in the faraway country, in the wilderness, the sheep, you know. And we understand the person who's lost in the house, in, even within our own home or church. And in the third story, Jesus combines both. The one who's lost far and the one who's near yet lost from his father, estranged from his father. There's both in the third story. So, verse 11. Or, sorry, 12. The younger son, his words, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Dad, I want you dead. That's what that translates into in almost every culture. Dad, I want you dead. I don't want to wait for my inheritance. I want it now. Give me my share of the property that's coming to me. It's a mutiny. It's a rebellion. It's disrespectful. It's all of that. He's not. I looked at this. And I wasn't. I I can't really find that the son broke any law. Read the law of Moses. I don't think he broke a law. But he broke his father's heart. He asked for the property coming to him. Notice he did not use the word inheritance. You know, in, in a lot of our, even in our culture, but even in the Middle East more so, in, the word inheritance would have included a lot more than just property and things. It would have meant the family name and status and work and place in that, in that village. He didn't want his inheritance. He doesn't want all of that. He wants the property that's coming to me. When you ask a Middle Easterner, where are you from? I've met a, a guy I, I met in, in Amman, capital city of Jordan. Where are you from? He said, oh, I'm from this village out over in Palestine, the West Bank. I said, oh, but where, were you born there? No, I was born here in Amman. Oh, but you're from, yeah, he's from there. Because his grandfather was there, his great-grandfather, all from that village on the other side of the river. Or a Jordanian who's moved to the city or maybe grown up in, in the big city, but you ask him where he's from. He'll, he'll name his family ancestral village 100 miles away. That's where he's from. He only he's visited there once or twice in his life, maybe. But that's where he's from. That's your roots, your place. Family ties and roles are, are 
deep and strong. And this young man wants to jettison that. He doesn't want the inheritance. He wants his share of the property coming to him. And the normal father's response would be to disown him, to punish him, to banish him, kick him out of the house. Go away. I don't want to see you again. You're not my son anymore. But Jesus is teaching us that this father is not a normal Middle Eastern patriarch. In fact, he just suffers and keeps the door open to restoration. He suffers this, and he actually gives his son what he asked for. He's not a Middle Eastern patriarch. So the son takes it all, gathers it together. says, he, after not many days... Verse uh, 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had. That's code for turned it to cash. And in a culture where you negotiate and haggle for months over property and weeks and days over other major purchases or hours over buying a, a mattress or something in that part of the world, for him to have cashed it in, sold it at, at, at such a, a quick rate, it was a sale at any price kind of thing. And this isn't the kind of wealth you and I are used to. Wealth in the Middle East, even today, is not as much kept in bank accounts and stock portfolios and bonds. It's kept in livestock and flocks and vineyards and homes and properties that take generations to build up and keep. For him to cash out his share of the property like that after not many days. I don't think he could have returned home hardly. It would have been so shameful. Everyone in the village would have known, would have seen what was going on. In fact, I would even su suspect he, he may not have even found somebody in the village to buy it. He might have had to have found an outsider. You're going to sell your family's ancestral land, property, and leave? He sold it, gathered his all together, and then journeyed to a far country. And in that part of the world, a far country, you know, don't think 20 or 30 miles maybe. <laughs> Probably not all that far, maybe a little further. We know he's in a foreign country because they had pigs. He's no longer in Israel. This Jewish young man is in the foreigner's land. And he lives <coughs> with foreigners and he spins it all. And there's something that even... Dr. Bailey writes about in his book, I've read about a little bit, is there was even this idea at the time of this, a cutting off ceremony. If a young man, basically if you marry an immoral woman or lose your wealth, your family's inheritance among the Gentiles, then you should be cut off from the neighborhood, cut off from the, your relations. You're, you're disowned. This man is going among foreigners and he spends all his property. In prodigal living. The word here is, uh, how does it say it? Reckless living. Prodigal living. It's wasteful. It's spendthrift. It's, it's being unwise. I don't believe there's any connotation of immorality here. At least it's not here in this, this passage. It doesn't mean he was immoral. Other than he wasted his money. He wasted it all. And then a famine comes at the same, about the same you know, end of his money, same time, the famine comes, and he's suddenly in want. And he hires himself out 
just a citizen of that country, it says. And there he's made to feed pigs. And for a Jew to feed pigs, I mean, you already kind of get that cultural reality. And at that time, you know, servants could have been given the, the extra parks. You slaughter a pig, you give them the intestines, the, the parks that you don't want, or the, the less, you know, the not as nice parks of the, the pig. He couldn't even have partaken in those as a Jew. You know, he, ate, he wanted to eat the carob pods that the pigs were being fed. These pods, the word there is from a tree that's still in the Middle East, these carob pods that are terrible to eat and not very good for nutrition a lot of times, these wild carob pods. That's where they fed the pigs. He wanted to eat those. That's how desperate he'd gotten in this far country. So <coughs> it says here in our translation that he came to himself. He sees all of this. Even, even said nobody gave him anything. That makes you wonder if he tried his hand at begging and nobody even gave him anything then. He came to himself. The Arabic translation of the, the passage is he got smart. I don't think there's an idea of repentance here. Not yet. And the reason I'll tell you why I think that is because he puts together a self-improvement plan. He says, Father, you know, he rehearses this. What am I going to say? He, he, he's thinking, first of all, about his stomach. How many of the servants in my father's house have plenty of bread? And here I am starving. I'm his son. So his stomach is motivating him. And he rehearses, rehearses this speech. You know, Father, I've sinned before you and before heaven. I'm no longer be worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. You know, the same repentance words of, of Pharaoh. I've sinned before heaven and before you. It's kind of this, I think we're meant to see that as sort of this, this cue that this, this language has been used before in a false repentance. I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. He wants to have a servant-master relationship with his father. The idea being, you know, he can come back home. He can sit out. And this is probably what he could expect in that culture. To maybe sit outside his father's house. Sit there for days. Beg. Until finally, if his father is merciful, he'll send a servant out to tell his son, all right, your father's arranged work in the next village over. Here it is. You can go there and live. You know, this son has the idea of, I can pay it back. Uh, yeah, I, you know, he, later on he could say, you know, I, I messed up, I, I was young and foolish, I took the money, but I, I paid it back. I came back and worked. It's his self-improvement plan. And so, just a quote from that book, uh, The Cross and the Prodigal. What Ken Bailey says is here at this point, in the deepest sense, the prodigal is not going home. He's going back to servanthood. As long as his former attitudes remain, he is still in a far country spiritually, even as he physically approached his home village. In short, at the edge of the village, he is still lost. And that's the next scene, is the edge of the village. When the son approaches with his self-improvement plan, rehearsing his speech. You ever rehearsed lines, the important words you want to say to somebody? He's rehearsing that all the way. And he gets to the edge of his village. And you can imagine the reactions that, that he could expect from people. You know, a mob probably to practically stone him may have even been a, a real threat after what he did. But his father sees him. Verse, verse 20, 
while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I like the King James language. It says he ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. The father, an old man in the Middle East, picked up his robes and ran. Men in the Middle East do not run anywhere. There could be a fire and I think they'd walk out of the house. <coughs> it's shameful to run. As an old man, oh, you just don't do that. He's running to his son and coming to hug him and embrace him and in a way even to protect him from others in the village who might come and, and, and try to kick him out and abuse him for what he did. He comes, kisses him, hugs him, holds on to him, and then the son gives the first half of his speech. But he dropped that last part. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. And that's true. And that's it. He dropped the self-improvement plan because he had seen his father's reaction. He saw, not even reaction, initiation. He saw what his father did. He knew that he was embraced and brought back, and so he dropped the self-improvement plan. And the father doesn't even say anything to him. He just immediately talks to the servants and gives five, five commands. You know, bring out the best robe. Dress him. Put a ring on his finger. Shoes on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it because we're going to celebrate. Put clothes on him. That's status. Sonship. Like Adam and Eve were given clothes by God to give them a new status after they had sinned. He's given status. He's put a ring on his finger. He can make decisions for the family with that ring. The idea there being like a signet ring, a family ring. Shoes on his feet. At that time, servants do not wear shoes. A son wears a shoe, wears his shoes. And then kill the fatted calf. Because my son was lost and now he's found. He was dead and now he's alive. And they celebrate. They celebrate. And then the older brother comes in from the field. Elder brother. Uh, that's a code word. The word elder there is the same word used of elders and scribes and Pharisees. They know who they are in the story when they're listening to Jesus telling this. The elder brother comes in from the field. And there's this servant. It says, uh, the word is a little different than the servant earlier. A young boy outside the home there. He calls him over and asks him, what's going on? He hears music. You know, he comes in. And he hears all this music going, dancing. He knows there's a party or something. And he knows something's up. But he asks, what's going on? And the, the young boy is like the narrator. He tells us what's happened. He says, your brother has come home, is, is back. He showed up, basically, is what it says. And your father has, has celebrated and killed the fatted calf because, let's, listen, let's look at this real quick. Verse... Uh, 27, your brother has come, your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And the words there, safe and sound, uh, the Greek word there, that's a good translation of it, but there's another translation. That word is always also translated as peace, in peace, shalom. The word spoken here, he's received him back, your father's received him back in peace. And then the older son knows it's too late. He knows what the response has been. That his, older, his younger brother's back. 
has been restored. And he's angry. And he won't go in. In the Middle East, to not go in, you know, when you have a people over your home, everybody in the every every male relative has to come. We visited a home once out in a village, and every brother and the father came, the brothers from their houses, from their jobs, from their shops. They all came to the house to kiss me on the cheek and 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 take my hand and welcome me and drink coffee with me in the living room. And they all came, and even though we had dinner together, and I just ate dinner with a few of them, you know, they all, not all of them stayed for dinner, but they all had to come for at least a little while to greet us and welcome us in because we were the guests of the family. This older son won't even go in. And this is a public insult to his father. Every leading man of the village would have been there, sitting and eating. And another rule in the Middle East is you never leave your guest. And this father, again takes the shame of his son upon himself and leaves his guests and comes out to this rebel outside the house and pleads with him. No address of father. The older son just says, look, look. These many years I've served you, done everything you've told me to do. What kind of relationship is he describing? master-servant relationship. Yet you've never given me even a young goat to eat with my friends. He's like writing himself out of the family for me to celebrate over here with my friends. You know, I don't want to be with the family. He assumes this master-servant relationship and he says, you know, this son of yours comes home after devouring your wealth with prostitutes. You know, men have been killed in the Middle East for lesser insults than that. And you've, you've received him. And the father basically just gives him a defense of joy. A defense for joy. Why to celebrate? The shepherd did not have to tell his friends all the reasons why they needed to come and celebrate the lost sheep being found. The woman in the house did not have to give a case to her neighbors on why to celebrate the finding of the tenth silver coin. But this father has to try to convince his cold, angry son why to celebrate when lavish costly, unexpected, scandalous grace has been shown. Undeserved kindness has been shown. The older son is just as lost as the younger. In fact, now he's the lost one. He's lost from his father. You're able to, and the application here is that you can escape God through religion or through irreligion. You can escape your heavenly father through being very pious and obedient as his servant wanting to please Him and earn His favor. Or you can be lost from your Heavenly Father by going your own way and doing your own thing and defining your own life however you want, living however you want. Both are lost. Because they're not depending, looking to the initiating love of the Father and just receiving that. That's the gift of the Gospel. That's why it is good news. It just comes to you and says, here it is. The Heavenly Father loves you and has, has taken the shame of your sin on Himself and His Son, Jesus. He's died and rose again for you. Just receive that grace. Believe it. Take it. And then you're saved. Rescued. That's the Gospel. That God gives unexpected, costly grace to sinners. It's far worse. He doesn't just eat, receive and eat with sinners. But our God 
the Lord Jesus, he runs down the road to greet the refugee. He runs down the road to grab hold of and kiss the Muslim or you or I and to drag them in to his party, his celebration. Praise God. 